Playback. Welcome to Q Playback. This is the podcast where we look at recording techniques from the lo-fi scene starting in the 90s of Melbourne and uh, spiralling out into present day producers and artists from around the world. Uh, today I'm taking you all back to 1990 or possibly 1989 um, and I'm going to introduce my guest Keith Cook who was one of my very first musical collaborators probably has all of the dirt to take away all of my indie cred. Uh, Keith, do you just want to say hi to make sure that you're not an AI that I've programmed up to make myself sound better? Yeah, 100%. I am an AI. No. <laughs> Chris, it is awesome to see you. It's been a very long time. And you're right. I think music collaboration as far back as like year eight in high school or something like that. That sounds about right, uh, if terrifying. Yeah. Um, so while we, we we first met in 1987 because we were both mm. at high school together, um, but the recordings that we have that are proof of us actually collaborating, I'm, I'm sure I have tapes earlier than this and I'll probably find them after this podcast goes out, but the earliest we can really confirm that we can collaborate was about 1990. Yeah. Um, now, I've got a... a um, a few details here about what music was popular in Australia in 1990. I'm going to put out to you, what were you listening in, nine, what do you think you were listening to in 1990? Oh, way too much U2, um, like from memory. And the, like, I, I think these were the high influences. It was, the, it was U2, definitely a lot of Midnight Oil, um, uh, probably a decent amount of The Cure, because I think I think when you and I were collaborating and we were listening to the you know sort of like the influences that would then uh, play in our particular music styles, I think the Cure had a very particular niche sound. Yeah. So um, what you're saying is I was a bad influence. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't quite get to Robert Smith's hair and mm. make, but we were heading in that direction, Ari. Oh, I do need to jump in with an anecdote at that point. Um, for some people who went to school with us, they will remember that um, when I was going through my goth stage, I I, I did have the long, dark uh, hair, and there was one day at school that I hairsprayed something special into my hair. Do you remember what that was? No clue. I do remember that. I remember the shoulder length dark hair, but I don't remember what you put in there. Uh, yeah, so at, at the peak of probably my goth stage, I found a dead moth and I used hairspray to stick it into my hair. <laughs> uh, okay, so going back to um, 1990, I'm going to throw out the top albums of 1990 for you. Mm -hmm. uh, number one in Australia, the number one selling album in Australia in 1990 Chain Reaction by John oh Bunyan. Goodness. Wow. Yes. Number two, uh, The Three Tenors in Concert. <laughs> Just goes to show that the purchase power of uh, boomers in Australia was uh, alive and kicking in 1990. Uh, number three, uh, you could probably predict it. Uh, Have a crack. 
Well, okay. 1990, it feels like there needs to be some sort of American pop princess in the midst of there. Not, the not quite, not quite. We were still in Australian pub days at 1990. Oh, really? Yep. Uh, not, nothing hunters and collectors or anything like that? They were on the list, but they were a lot further down. I'm going to give you a clue. It starts with Blue Sky and it ends oh, with okay. Midnight Oil. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so... At least Midnight Oil were represented in the top three of that's, uh, albums. Reasonable. Um, it took me a little while to scroll down the top albums of 1990 to find that at number 29, there was X by In Excess. Oh, yeah, In Excess. Yeah, wow. Um, at number 37, The Real Thing by Faith No More. Mm-hmm. And uh, at number 49, something that I would have to say had a huge impact on uh, the direction of our music, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Them by MC Hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So obviously there there were a lot of these things that were um, uh, in our formative years that uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say idolisation, but were very um, directive in the, the paths that we wanted to take with our sounds. Um, I would have to say that in 1991, uh, probably the most influential album I've had, uh, especially at that point in my life, but I still look back at it as one of the, the biggest albums in terms of influence and uh, impact on lyric writing. What would you think that would be from your history of knowing me? Uh, look, my my guess is going to be is it's something either to do with The Smiths or The Cure. That would be my – am I anywhere close? close? close. 1991 was Aktung Baby. Oh, really? That was, did you find that most – I mean, that was a that was a really interesting album for them because it was a reinvention album, right? Like they, they actually did something that not many artists have done successfully, which is to take a whole genre line and go, you know what, let's throw it on its head and let's reinvent and, and completely uh, go in a different direction and actually be successful at it, you know? Yeah. I think for me, um, because I'd been a, a long-term fan, I found that the experimentation and the sonics that were there on Boy, um, October and War, mm was actually closer to what was on Uktung Babe. I think it was you uh, 2 had pretty much built this idea of themselves as saviors of the world, um, <laughs> the champions of the underdog, and um, and, and they, 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 they pretty much built the hill that they could die on, mm. and they were brave enough to step away from it and experiment again. Um, I heard someone once describe it as being um, they let their – the devils onto stage with them as well as their angels. Yeah. Um, and I and I, I think you're right that in that reinvention, um, they actually cemented a place in pop, in pop culture and in writing. Um, mm. But it's the kind of step that could also completely backfire. Um, totally. Yeah. And it has, and it has time and time again when somebody's actually tried to uh to reinvent themselves and not successfully had that either they've not artistically created something that has you know sort of like wet the palate of of uh you know mass listeners but 
Uh, maybe potentially they're not being incredibly authentic in the process as well. And so you can see through it. You can feel that it's a little bit plastic and it's a little bit like the the record companies in the background going, come on, we need to make more money and tune out something that's going to sell some more CDs. And Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think also, yeah, even if we're looking at the recording side of things, um, it's not a clean album. Mm. All of the sounds that you know, they'd really tried to polish on previous recordings They'd started experimenting, um, and I think for me, because I'd say at this point I'm still a guitarist, not really pushing into singing. Um, probably writing. I was writing a lot of poetry. Uh, probably you know sad stuff, making wanting to have girls adore me. Um, <laughs> but the sounds are dirty, distorted. Um, that the kind of sounds that you get when you're using cheap pedals in your bedroom, which is what I was doing. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, so going back to us meeting, so aside from uh, meeting our students in high school, what is your first memory of us playing music together? Wow. I, I, I have set this up in, in previous episodes saying that I think I'm somewhat of uh, an unreliable narrator because um, most of my memories are set around emotions and music. Mm. I don't have the details. I don't have the numbers. And so that's why I'm opening it. I'm opening all of this up to other people to say, what the hell were you talking about? That's not how it happened. Yeah. All I can say is how I felt. So over to you. I think, so I know that we were, we started collaboration. We started music. I remember in high school, I remember playing in the music room, uh, in, uh, school uniforms, green and brown school uniforms. I do remember that. I don't think that we were really discovering ourselves musically at that point. We were kind of like regurgitating and there's probably a lot more cover stuff. I think when we started to explore what our musical style and taste and, of what our creations could look like. I think that was actually post high school from memory. Mm. Um, and I do remember it was, I loved listening to those sound bites you sent through and, and Brad, um, you know, playing with him was a, an absolute pleasure. It really was because he was an amazing drummer. So for those of the, you that are listening, um, you might remember uh, Brad Dwyer. Uh, so Brad went on to be um quite a part of the Melbourne indie music scene. He played mm. in Box Sound uh, and then went on to play in Blessington. Um, sadly, we lost Brad a couple of years ago um, and a lot of people uh, were hit hard by that. Um, we would often butt heads even more more recently because uh, we were both, I guess, strong characters, had strong ideas about what we thought the world would be. But um, I think we were all better for being challenged or infuriated at times um, <laughs> by Brad. Um, I know that um, local radio here in Melbourne um, commemorated his passing. Uh, so mm. shout out to Steve White um, on Fire and White on Triple R for that. Um, uh, because no matter how small our world might feel, some people are a massive part of those worlds. Um, so yeah, we should we should really say thank you, and you know, to each other, not just to Brad, but to each other that we had those experiences together. Hundred um, percent. It's it's funny. I think back onto that that time as well. 
one of the things that I've always admired about him in, in musically and also just in terms of personality, he really knew how to be a risk taker. And I think that uh, for me personally, I was so the opposite, even in my music risk taking was not a, a natural thing. So I felt like there was a much slower progression to go and explore different music styles and then see how I could connect with that, whether or not that fit my expression and, and the light. Whereas I noticed his personality was, he was bent towards that risk taking and what it produced in terms of music was often really amazing. It was a, it really was as a bass player, it's a pleasure to play with a really connected drummer. Yeah. Uh, and that was the experience that I had with him. So anyway, you know, all the way back to, you know, when did we start? Yeah. I, I do remember I have vivid, well, somewhat vivid memories of those god-awful, you know, uniforms that we used to wear. Um, and then I think from memory it was around Barclay Street time that we were actually rehearsing, maybe even in the air. Um, I can't remember exactly where it started, but it kind of moved from there, I think. So after we finished uh, high school, uh, I'd moved into a share house. Uh, that's what Keith's referencing there. And um, we started performing and uh, rehearsing as a band called Grind. Um, so we'll go into some of the demos that we did while we were still at high school. And um, I actually have another guest, Richard Decline, lined up to go over the Grind days um, in a future episode. Um, but um, yeah, uh, should we play a couple of um, these little demos that um, for our listeners, to give a little bit of perspective, um, I've found cassette tapes uh, that have been in storage since 1990, maybe 95, and um, then I've transferred them digitally. Um, I've got no idea what you'll make of this, and the, the audio quality is obviously, um, I'm going to say portable stereo, maybe a stereo at someone's house. So. Um, I'll play a bit of this. I'll, I'll probably touch it up in post for people that want um, the full hi-fi experience. Um, I'll put these up as samples on the Patreon as well. I have this one labelled as a ballad. Incredible to hear that hi-fi fidelity <laughs> on this track. Um, I'm pretty sure I had some heavy flanging or chorusing on the guitar, and it's not just the bad tape, I'm not sure. But... You love that flanger. You absolutely love that flanger. Uh, we'll come back to that. <laughs> well, I've not listened to another one.
interesting thing listening back to this one was that I thought we're vaguely competent as musicians. <laughs> and we wouldn't have been playing that long at this point. What else have we got in here? Uh, Chris and Keith Guitar Heroes. Mm. <laughs> I think some of these were really just an excuse for us to try and show up our jobs. them. Um, <laughs> um, so on the tech side of things, what do you remember that you were using in your rig at that point? I was thinking about this. I, I, I'm pretty sure most of my stuff was a pretty basic setup. I got a feeling that I had an Ibanez at that time because I remember that the bass that I was using and what I was going for for a, for a sound was definitely a, it was a lot more sort of punchy 80s sort of influence sound than it was sort of soft jazz tones. So yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember having uh, like it was uh, uh, an Ibanez bass or something in that vein, which had that more punchy sort of a sound. And and interestingly enough, my progression from there in terms of bass guitars, I ended up going a lot deeper, a lot softer in, in, in terms of sound. Um, but it really was that kind of, um, it really was that kind of punchy bass sound that I was going for at the time. I'm going to point I did... out that uh, because of your uh, work life as a minister, yeah, I'm not going to make any uh, sexual allusions to the comments that you just made. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, the uh, the base uh, the setup itself was actually pretty simple. I was thinking about this when we were talking about you know, the podcast and, and what have you in a t about technology. Um, I actually think my attitude towards the gear that I had and the technology that I would even potentially allow myself to use, um, I think it was, it was probably a level of, you know, sliding competence. And, and so that generated this sort of antithesis of, well, I don't want to actually use technology. I don't want to use something that's really, I don't want to pay that $500, you know, guitar pedal. You yeah. know, for on my compressor for my bass because you know that's just selling out and cheap. And now I'm on the other <laughs> end of the spectrum, and I've got this pedal board, and I've got the nice JHS Morning Glory, <laughs> and I've got like a Deep Six. I uh, was it um, a Walrus Audio Deep Six compressor, and you know other bits and pieces. Amazing the journey that you play. Uh, sorry, that you take over time. Uh, but at that time, I think it was incredibly simple. Um, and I didn't know you, what I could do. You have a chorus pedal, is that right? I think a little bit of a chorus pedal on the bass, but I'm pretty sure you lent me that chorus pedal from memory. Ooh, okay. 
Yeah, I don't think that I had. I remember I I remember wanting to try distortion and overdrive, and all I had available was um, one of the. Oh, I'm gonna muck this up. It's like the Boss HM1, like eight, uh, heavy metal, which is um, you know more distortion, a uh, distortion than an overdrive, right? Which um, I also had. I think everyone at that age, yeah, pretty much <laughs> heavy metal pedal. Yeah, or the OD1, the the Boss OD1, right? If only um, we'd been slightly older and cooler, we could have had the grunge pedal. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. And you know, and there were bands that made it work, right? <laughs> that 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 made uh, you know, probably more fuzz on bass really work for them. So um, yeah, but uh, but I'm pretty sure that I was actually I was very limited in my application of technology, and I think it came more from a fear of not knowing what to do and how to use it. Yeah. And what was the amp you were using back then? Do you remember? Oh, I've got a, I've got a feeling it was like a PV. Um, I think I, right from memory. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was something sharp, and I mean, it had plenty of bass tone in it, but it was something that it had, that was able to get that kind of sharp, um, sort of sound out that I wanted. Uh, coming back to that flanger pedal, so um, I was speaking in the previous podcast about my very limited guitar setup and that I had an analogue to pay a delay pedal made by Roland, probably a compressor, a very cheap distortion. I think it was before I had the heavy metal, I had some boss knockoff distortion mm. model. Um, but my uncle had given me um, a special flanger pedal. It was the jet flanger filter yeah. <laughs> um, matrix made by Corin. Yeah, right. That I absolutely loved. So th- this is a combination flanger pedal and um, pretty much a, a breakup fuzz pedal. Um, and it was from the 70s. Um, and I loved that thing. Um, but as happens with Musos, um, Someone says, oh, can I borrow that for a session? And I never saw it again. <laughs> um, so anyone who wants to look up the um, the reverb price for um, a Corin filter matrix, um, uh, sorry, uh, flanger, jet flanger filter matrix pedal, uh, you will share my dismay. <laughs> um so back then, our, like our writing style would have been very, very basic. Mm. Uh, I think I might have come in with some kind of structure that would have been back then. I would have it would have even been verse, chorus, verse, chorus, not even verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Yeah, if you're um, lucky. So where um, you've taken your own path with your writing. Since grind disbanded, um, how would you say that your writing technique has changed between those heady days mm. where you are now, and um, for the style that you've had to write for? Oh yeah, this great question. I think um, part of the journey, you know, when I was much younger, I mean, I certainly don't remember writing songs. Uh, like myself actually writing my own songs as early as as the 90s. Um, I'm sure I wanted to, but I think a lot of what I did was probably just regurgitating what was, you know, already out there and what we were listening to at the time. I think what I ended up sort of going on in terms of a journey of, of writing was learning how to 
convey uh, a picture and emotion and a connection to something authentic and something real but not necessarily telling the story. It's like good movie makers, right? They they don't have to give you all that preamble. You can always tell a really crappy movie, some sort of B-grade movie, because the first 15 minutes is somebody telling the story. Yeah, exposition. Yeah. Exactly, right? And and you you just you feel robbed um, in a sense. And I think sometimes poor, and I want to say poor as in they're bad songwriters, but just poor songwriting it doesn't allow you to kind of use your imagination to fill in the blanks. And so I think I started, I started writing and I think it's only really in the last, I want to say in the last five years or so that I think that I've really actually explored this even further, uh, trying to write in terms of painting a picture for the other person to fill in the blanks as opposed to me trying to tell exactly what's going on. Right. Um, whereas when I was much younger, I didn't have that natural skill set or even that natural understanding that great songs, um, don't tell you the story. They help you to experience it yourself and imagine it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and some of that's come, uh, from, uh, having, I mean, you alluded to before, I, you know, I spent the last five years as a, as a pastor in a, a faith community in a church. And so a lot of my music has been centered around that, which means you have a reasonably limited subject matter, right? And that in some ways can make it a little bit easier because your your subject matter is reasonably defined. You know that you're heading in a direction where the broad scope of artistic expression, you've got subject matter all over the place. You could songwrite about anything. So were you really sort of trapped down to God, good, devil, bad, uh, post-millennialism who's really sure yeah <laughs> well that was one of the lyrics though no <laughs> not at all um yeah it's funny right so i actually i liked sitting in the dark corners a bit more i liked posing the questions it's not always palatable in that space um uh, for people or sometimes people are not always happy to go there but i actually really think it's an important part of uh, it's an important part of my faith and it's an important part of the faith experience is understanding brokenness, acknowledging brokenness, right? Um, and then going, well, what beauty is found in the midst of that brokenness? And so I think what I tried to do was to start to write towards that and not just make it really formulaic and here is the black and whiteness between this is good, that is bad. Yeah. Um, and to hark back to um, our beginnings at a, a Christian school in the uh, Melbourne suburbs, uh, there was a quote from C.S. Lewis that was, um, we write to know we're not alone. Mm-hmm. And I think regardless of how you feel about any kind of faith, um, that idea in expressing music, I think what else you know, what, what else am I trying to do with my time? Yeah. Um, and when I really need to hear a particular song and those lyrics that may have seemed a little bit aloof suddenly hit the mark, mm-hmm. I'm there with that other writer knowing that my human experience is being shared and yeah. that I'm not alone in the world. Um, so I think that's a really important valid point that um, you know, whatever sphere you're in, um, and as you say, like you're taking people on a journey. You're not saying this is how it is. We're saying we're on the road together. You're not alone, but you've got 
other steps in front of you. Yeah. So moving back a bit, I'll, I'll, I'll go to where we were recording these demos that we were just listening to. I think they were either on a portable stereo or they would have been in the lounge room of one of our parents. I'm pretty sure there's one of those songs, one of the ballads, I'm pretty sure that that is the front room of your parents' house. <laughs> in Warrandyte, Melbourne, Victoria. Um, and so it could have been the internal condenser microphone on a tape deck. Oh, yeah. wow. That's um, amazing. And most of these would have been at that capacity, whether it was a church hall that we were mm. rehearsing in. Um, we didn't really get to the four-track recordings until a bit later, and yeah. that was when we were starting to uh, move towards performing under the name Grind. Um, but for yourself, like... I opened up the last podcast talking about how everyone has GarageBand on their iPad now. So you can multi-track record anything. You can drop, you know, pitch-perfect samples into your tracks and you've got a release-quality um, you know, product in five minutes on your iPad. Yeah. Um, but going back in time, what do you think was your most desperate moment of innovation to capture a song idea? Oh, wow. It's funny. I think now, because, I mean, this is the tool of now, right? The, the, the voice memo. There's at home. Keith's holding up. iPhone <laughs> something, something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, and, <laughs> I, and, uh, some yeah. sort of smart device, right? We use, we use that. Um, I know that I had a, I remember very fondly that I had my very first stereo was this dual cassette and cd player and i remember this because the first cd i ever bought was 10 to 1 by midnight oil Ooh. and i played um short memory on repeat like you know until my ears bled sort of thing so i'm pretty sure it was just it was quite simply it was stuff like that um and i did have an acoustic guitar at home but it was one of those crappy um you know sort of like everyone gets the beginner's spanish you know sort of nylon string guitar so that's about, and it was never in tune. <laughs> it was never in tune. Um, and that's probably about as, as good as my song idea capturing uh, became. It wasn't, it was probably a little bit later that I started. I did at some point actually start using journals a bit when it came to lyric writing, okay. um, which I found was beneficial actually getting the words out on paper and being able to scribble around with them. The... I think the important step from there is actually then what you, what time frame or what process you give that lyric. So how is it visible for you? Is it in a book and it's just tucked away or are you keeping it visible and active in your imagination? So when you walk to the toilet and you come up with this additional line that connects with it, you go, Oh, I can, I can tie that all in. Um, learning that was actually a very long process, but, um, initially I'm sure it was just quite literally just little tape decks and stuff like that, which uh, where they ended up, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm amazed and in, in somewhat in awe that you actually were able to keep hold of and find those tapes from the 1990s, mate. That was quite impressive. Uh, there's a lot of them and it's going to take a long time to go through. <laughs> uh, 
which is why I thought it was worth doing a podcast uh, because otherwise things would just sit there. As you were just alluding to, like when does something just sit there on paper and when does it come out mm. into the light? Um, and similarly for myself, I would say that with the writing side of things, um, there's a part where you want to write a song, you want to write a song about something, and then you get to the point, well, how much am I able to reveal of myself and my own fallibility in trying to connect with other people around an idea? Yeah. Uh, and no one can make that decision for you. Mm. Um, I, <laughs> in one of my journals somewhere, I have, uh, you know, a line something like, could I make it more obvious I'm spinning naked in Times Square? Um, and I think the desperation that I had and my love for music um, from the early days has stayed about the same. Mm. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm still going. But when I think back about some of the songs that I've written, it's like, was that too much? Is that too far? Um but maybe that's only for the people listening to decide. Yeah, that's it. It is an interesting, it's an interesting question that, uh, like you said, you can only answer it yourself. And I agree with you on that. Really, at the end of the day, anything that is authentically creative is going to reveal a little part of yourself. Um, And, um, I do think that there's, there have been some times that I think that I've written something really for the audience of one um, with no real intent to actually do anything with it, but it feels really genuine and authentic for me in that moment. Um, and it gives me the ability to actually put down to paper or even express in some sort of poetic form something that I'm trying to process through or deal with or you know, just maybe not fully understand but at least validate in myself yeah. as well, yeah? It, it brings up attention really because um, these days so much of what we see around us is you have to be create, you have to be hustling, you have to be creating, mm. everything you, you know, you're doing has to be out there for other people. But maybe art is legitimate because it's a tool for us to understand ourselves in the world. It doesn't sell a thousand, you know, a million units. It doesn't, um, you know, top the charts, whatever they mean these days, it doesn't, um, you know, do uh, um, millions on Spotify. Does that mean it's not valid for yourself? Yeah. Should, should we uh, play down or condemn or discard the worth of that because it's only for one person? Um, you know, it's, um, I, I come from art for art's sake. Um, and I'll probably die for saying that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so through, you, you've taken this this journey from uh, high school beginner um, through to you know learning craft, putting your craft into the service of something bigger. Um, mm. What what would you say um, are the most important things that you've learned along that journey? Oh, wow. Um, I'm just trying to get you to encapsulate the last 40 years. Yeah, let's do 40 years in, a, in, uh, in five 60 minutes. 60 seconds of sound <laughs> Um 
Oh, for crying out loud, give yourself grace. Like seriously, make a mistake every now and then and don't punch yourself as a result. I used to be the absolute worst um, when it came to making mistakes. And I, it, it, it either vocally as a singer or, you know, on guitar or on, on, on bass. Um, and it would totally sour my experience in the moment. And I would struggle so much to get out of that. It would take me a very long time to get out of that. Um, and, and I think the last 40 years condensed is, is probably one of the biggest things is actually just going, oh, you know, give yourself some grace for crying out loud and just be authentic in the moment. If you make a mistake, just move on and, and don't judge yourself in the middle of it. It's um, it, one of the things that I know that I've struggled with as a songwriter is, and, and my, a, a friend of mine, uh, Joel, um, who, who led me through this sort of, um, I guess this understanding or understanding this concept um, talked about the difference between the creator and the editor. Um, and I identified pretty quickly that one of the things that I do, or I did a lot was I created and edited at the same time. And so I never fully gave my creative self the ability to just go rampant just get it all out there. Just try some chords and, you know, put down some lyrics and, oh, yeah, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but I'm not going to change it yet because my editor is off to the side and I'm not going to engage them yet. Yeah. And then allow for some time between that and then go back in to edit. And separating those two, you often find gems in the midst of what you put together you didn't even realise were there. Um, and so I, I think a lot of that for me actually came down to confidence and confidence. Uh, and when I was younger, I had very little. Um, and over the years, I, my confidence may have increased. I think it has uh, somewhat. Uh, but I think my confidence has increased even more so. And that confidence allows me to have grace for myself. It allows me to go, you know what? I'm just going to create in this moment and I'm not going to worry about editing myself. And I'll wait to actually look at it objectively instead of subjectively in the moment um that's probably one of the big things uh that i've it's a big journey that i've been on and i haven't gotten it right all the time and i've often ended up very angry at myself in the midst of it and had to come you know sort of self-talk myself back into it and go look let's just let this this one lie and i'll get back into it and then continue to grow in grace for myself you know and i think that is a very big um journey and legitimate journey because I think the the idea of editing uh, sometimes it's what we want out of the piece of music the lyrics we're working on sometimes it's what we're fearing that the world mm. will respond uh, to in those moments and so it's not just about um oh is this song too cheesy are these lyrics too cheesy it's um how am I feeling about myself when I'm putting something on display? Um, and so I think that's um, a really big step forward that um, artists have to make where you're saying, well, I will risk that for the sake of something that's genuine, yeah. um, even if it opens myself up to criticism. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's a really important thing for, for artists. Um, for myself, um, it, it is a tricky one to find that balance between um, is it too much? Is it entertainment? Um, I don't, I know 
many, many fantastic musicians and singers who are fantastic entertainers. I don't think of myself as an entertainer. I don't think I'm that kind of uh, writer or musician. Um, as a producer, I can go for the ride and assist other people on their paths. But when it comes to creating my own art, I'm, that's just not the space I work in. Um, mm. Yeah, it's funny. I, I would have used the word explorer for you. Like I, I always thought about your lyrics as you're exploring something and you're, you're kind of like, I'm not even going to tell you what the final destination is. <laughs> just going on a bit of a journey. Yeah. Um, this has been fantastic. Um, there's lots of things that I'd, I'd forgotten. Um, and I'm sure that we could talk for another couple of hours and maybe we will down the track um, if we get into some other discussions. Um, but um, thanks so much for making this time uh, today, Keith, and um, yeah, sharing your recollection, re recollections and uh, where you are now, um, mm. because I think that's um, you know, really special. Um, we offer, at the end of the podcast, we ask people if they've got any plugs that they want to push. Do you have music or uh, charities you're um, in love with that you want to push? Um, shout out any web addresses. Hey, great. Yeah, great question. I, I, you know what, I'm going to, I had the privilege um, a couple of years back of working for Mission Australia. And uh, I, I met this guy the other day, his name's Ivan. He was lying down on the floor outside of the bus that I got off on to go to work. And um, some time ago, that I don't know if you've visited Sydney, there are quite a lot of people who are, uh, who are struggling with homelessness at the moment. Um, it's become even more rampant since the increase in, you know, rental rises and there's such a pressure on the rental market at the moment. Um, but I had this great chat with Ivan and, uh, you know, any person that you see on the street is actually a human being who is inherently valuable in their own right, regardless of the, whatever journey they've taken. And I had the privilege of working with Mission Australia and seeing the kind of work that they get to do. So my only plug that I'd really love to say is, Get onto Mission Australia's website, see how you can support them. I know they have endeavours, they take donations um, because there are a lot of people, even the people you wouldn't necessarily suspect uh, who are struggling with housing uh, issues at the moment and it is a big thing that we're facing. Thanks so much again, Keith. Um, so, yeah, everyone jump on Mission Australia if that's your thing. Uh, if not, find someone in your local community that uh, might need a bit of a hand up at the moment and um, have a chat with them. Um, and as always, we'll sign off with there is magic in the mystery of not quite knowing exactly what you're doing. Cue playback.